What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio with his How About Them Cowboys sweatshirt on, it's Andy Greenwald! How dare you? Never that. Never that. We fly, you go fly here. What's up, Andy? It's great to see you. It's Monday in the United States and around the world. Although just barely yep. because of daylight saving. Got a little confused by that Very last night. Confused. Or the, you know, two nights ago. You're still confused. A bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always forget because it's... Uh, fall back. Fall back goes back an hour. Spring so we, ahead. Yeah, right. I know I, I got it. Like, I did what? have to Google it is all I'm saying. Okay. Anyway, Andy, it's great to see you. We're going to chat a bit about um, mm-hmm. a couple of things today. Yeah. There's a there's a New Yorker piece that I thought we could chat about. Michael that's Shulman. Why, that's why we stay winning. Uh, we cover has a, the important. A piece about the twilight of the prestige uh, TV era. Yeah, and about Peter Biskin's Wait new book. Wait till Bill hears that when I tell him it's the twilight of the prestige TV era. What's what, he going to do with that pod? Is he going to rename it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, actually, there's some really good stuff on the prestige TV uh feed right now because Amanda and Joe are doing some crown stuff that's really excellent. Uh, we were going to talk a little bit about uh, a new trailer from our favorite homies over to the MCU. I can't believe it. We were trying to take a day off from Marvel and we were going to push our Loki conversation to next week, but they just keep keep dropping content. Yeah. And then we were going to spin the dial because there's a couple of uh, shows kicking around mm-hmm. that we've we've checked out that we were just going to kind of run through really quickly. But how are you, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. I watched the uh, Eagles-Cowboys game yes. yesterday with Andy. Yes. And so I feel like sometimes people are interested in a little insight into our friendship. And it was, you know, it, there's good parts and there's bad parts, just like with Are we going to litigate this on the podcast? We are. Okay. I feel I feel like <laughs> Kaya can weigh in. So I want to let people know, and I feel like people know this, that um, I am a terrible, over-emotional sports fan. I am a nightmare to be around, and I really shouldn't, I really shouldn't do this. because You didn't do it for a while, and I wonder if that was some of the best work we've ever done. Absolutely. Yeah. Because instead of just enjoying the contest and the competitiveness and seeing great players excel. And Cracking a beer, maybe having some pretzels, whatever it is. Right. I have decided to take my emotional state, <laughs> put it in a sort of bubble, project it from my body, and place it into the goonish hands of Nick Sirianni and the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> and his Italian-American heritage visor. So it's not that I... So I want my team to win, uh-huh. as all fans do. It's just that I need them to win or else I am plunged into an existential despair for days at a time. This is not okay. This is not healthy. And so what Chris 
does is the opposite. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, this is also why you are the glue guy of the ringer, right? Like you, you meet people where they are and then you kind of help them, I think. The that, glue guy of the ringer, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what people are calling you on the internet. Okay. Did you know that? I didn't. I go on the internet a lot. <laughs> Which is also why I'm really healthy Mostly psychologically. Like, am I mentally ill? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so Chris was like, we'll watch this game together. And we've watched many games together over many decades. But I think partly because it was a little bit of a wellness check where you were like, my attitude It was technically the end of wellness week here at Spotify. It yeah. was. And what better way to end it than with, you know, the season finale of me. <laughs> Of your wellness. <laughs> <laughs> because Chris's attitude, and he he sort of dropped this to me. I didn't realize this. We've we've been co-sports fans of all of our teams for decades. But you were like, what I like is, uh, you like to see your heroes challenged, right? You like to see struggle. Yeah. And you like to be honest and look directly at the problems. Yeah. Clear eyes. I like a little, I like a, I, a, just a, a tad bit of pain. You like a little pain. Yeah, I like an 11 and 6 season. So, you know, like it's just like, ooh, that, that hurt a little bit. Let's try that again. So, at first I was very happy. So, Chris came over and was just like modeling really responsible behavior. He he ate a irresponsible sandwich with me mm-hmm. and then was just like, let's let's get into the sports. Now, Chris seemed a little too fine with everything during our game against our blood rivals, the Dallas Cowboys, and it was because pretty early on I turned to him in Cowboys who converted a, a long third down, and Chris seemed pretty cool with it. And no, you let slip. No, 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 no. Chris no, was no. like, "Well, the truth is, I win either way." Because I didn't guess say who my that. starting QB I in fantasy is? I said I had Dak in fantasy. Wow. Uh-huh. Dak, Dakota, Dak Prescott, the the quarterback for the Dakota Cowboys. P, we call him. And all I said to you was, "It looks like I'm going to win anyway." <laughs> But if yeah. he could just get like yeah. 200 yards. Yeah, but like hard fought. Like yeah, maybe like st- just really like nothing burger, like underneath routes. Because we're up by 14, he just has to throw and throw. Yes. But I just don't understand. Like, I didn't know how you could have your loyalty split like that. It wasn't loyalty split. At what point did I say, like, I hope the Cowboys do, like, there is going to be like a certain, I just didn't need him to throw like five picks. That's all that I, I, I wanted. Look, as your friend and as your fan, I was just happy that you were going to walk out of my house with a smile no matter what. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. You know, <laughs> okay. you got some Doritos, you had a high life, you had a sandwich, and either way, you're a winner. <laughs> So, yeah, we found ourselves on opposite it, sides of life. It's just more that like the end of the game was an absolute nightmare. Yeah, we, and I was, I was invested in that. I, it was not like I was like, oh, I hope Dak gets a game winning touchdown. It's just like there was I a moment. I my fantasy game there was that a, point. There, there was a moment when we were on the couch and I looked over to you and I felt as queasy as our greatest generation heroes probably felt on the boat to Normandy. And I look over to you, my buddy who's about to storm the beach and you were like practicing German. You know what I mean? You were like, I'm okay. Like, you It'll just, be fine. You, I, I think that you have a hard time understanding yeah. how I can hold oh. multiple ideas in my head at the same time. So I while do. the number one thing is that the Philadelphia Eagles win, that's important. That's the most important thing. Sure. It, if it came at the expense of my mm. fantasy team, so be it. That's totally fine. Okay. Dak is like my third or fourth quarterback choice this season. I've I've, uh-huh. I've had a little bit of a bad injury luck in that department. All right. Second of all, I like to keep keep it light. I like to ask... <laughs> just probing questions. I think at one point during the game, during uh-huh. a particularly dark time, yeah, during a dark eagle stretch, mm-hmm. I asked you if you'd <laughs> heard the good <laughs> word about Representative Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of House, and his computer habits. I think at one point I asked you, what's up with Chili Crisp? How come that's on every recipe now? <laughs> Can we kayak on this? We, the eagles are like white-knuckling it to the finish. Chris turns to me, totally calm, and he's like, do you think we're taking this chili crisp thing too far? Like, great question. Chili crisp is in every starter. single Instagram recipe right now. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> I don't know what you, what do you guys want me to weigh in on well, here? So let me you tell you, I was wrong of out of this, to bring that up? Out of this like, just like room. no bad ideas in a brainstorm yeah. session, I good. came up with my newest restaurant idea. This was good. Which is chili crisp. <laughs> Which is my favorite dishes with just like a little bit of chili crisp on top. It's like that Portlandia episode of like put an egg on it. Yes. Yes. And and so I thought Dave e- Chang, call me. Even <laughs> even in the midst of what was, you know, truly an existential meltdown by me, I was like, that's a million dollar idea. <laughs> I would Sadly, I, I, restaurants need to make more than a million dollars to fair. get by at Los Angeles. I thought that was really good. I um 
I guess the other takeaway that might be more relevant to our listeners is that I realize that when it comes to sports and sports alone, I am perhaps a little hot-headed, emotional, and quick to assume things. Mm -hmm. Only in sports. Only in sports. In the rest of my no, life, in television, I'm, no, in I'm art, you're just I'm like, sober. let's let the chips all get fall on the table before we decide. Yeah. Let's let the great arc of history weigh in on this before yeah. we form an opinion. <laughs> That's why the, the watch plus five years is, is what we're doing Still now. Still a good idea. Yeah. Uh, let's have a premature evaluation of uh, the forthcoming Marvel TV show, Echo. Great. And to be clear, we're punting Loki this week. We're going to talk about it next I week. I watched it. Uh, I watched it. Yeah, no, and I know. you know what? Honestly, here it comes. Uh, I will say that this episode really emphasized the power of friendship. Wow. Yeah. Like, like accepting friends no matter what? Friendship in its, uh, its power over time travel. Oh. Yeah. Like traveling back to a time before I knew you did fantasy? <laughs> okay. Traveling back to a time when I could get in on the ground floor of Chili Chris. <laughs> like the one time I tried to do fantasy sports of any kind, I was in a baseball league and I was like just trying to figure out a way to carry Philly's utility outfielder Ben Francisco on my team uh, out of loyalty. Yeah, I've done that. I've I've done the like I've done the Philly thing. I've done yeah. the like no Cowboys thing. I I got off to a really hot start and I had to do what I had to do to make sure <laughs> to make sure that my family was fed. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't your but doesn't your political hero, Mike Johnson, not have a bank account? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you just tell me that? So maybe... I mean, there's no bank accounts in the Bible. That's true. And that's where he, what he bases a lot of his moves on, you know? That's the playbook. It's all there in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. That's what Mike McCarthy should have been holding up to his face <laughs> on first and goal. His Corinthians? Probably would have gotten that him the touchdown. Amazing. It yeah. would have been better. Um Andy, we spent a lot of the last episode, Thursday's mm -hmm. episode, right? Yeah. That was that was when we talked about Marvel, right? I mean, it's been the last month, but particularly right, that was yeah. the, the Tanya and the Siegel of Variety article mm -hmm. discussing, you know, the state of the MCU and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And we've been talking about it a lot throughout the Loki conversation, I think, because, um, because you've been somewhat repelled by it. I, I, I as well, like, just been kind of like, oh god, you know, yeah, Re repelled, 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 yeah, yeah. Wait, repel is when you. Go down. Repel is when you fly towards Wanda after she's read the dark book. <laughs> dark And then you fly back. Yeah. Um, there was a trailer over the weekend that was released uh, for a new Marvel show. One that Joanna Robinson, when she joined our show, was mm -hmm. like, hey, the word is, is that this one's, this one's really a turkey. And that's Echo. I bring this up only because of two developments. One, this trailer is hard as shit. Mm -hmm. This trailer is like violent and angry and dramatic mm -hmm. and and is it all the things that I look for in Marvel? No, but it is an interesting left turn from Marvel and it kind of is indicative, I think, of a moment where they're like, we need to try some new stuff. Yes. This show will be airing, I believe, on FX, on Disney and Hulu. So they are looking for mm -hmm. other places to put their content. And most importantly, as producer Kaya so helpfully pointed out this morning because Kaya... Nobody's on Marvel Rumors Reddit like her. Mm -hmm. uh, there is now a new designation for Marvel, certain Marvel products, shows and movies, I assume, uh, called Marvel Spotlight, mm -hmm. which will essentially be like a banner that goes on these things on Disney Plus or in their marketing that is supposed to specifically indicate to the audience that they do not need to have any other knowledge of the MCU to understand what is happening in this show. Right. What do you think of that? Well... And you say what? I think... What do I think about that designation or about Echo or the whole Let's thing? Let's start with the designation and then go to what you think of Echo. I think I think when you have to do that, you've lost a little bit. When you need to like hang a lantern on something to be like, hey, newbie, you won't be, what was your word? Repelled yeah. by this content. I think that's a little bit problematic and probably it just kind of feels like slapping a Band-Aid on a much larger wound, which is if you are the steward of a multi-billion dollar franchise that needs to now pack an instruction manual to engage with, that's not where you want to be. But that's where we end up when everything is serialized and everything is part of a larger IP play. My larger takeaway to all of this, including the spotlight thing, to be honest, is, and, and in a way this actually uh, connects to the arc the conversation I think we're about to have about Michael Schulman's article in The New Yorker and about which is itself about Peter Biskin's book about the state of prestige TV, which is interesting slash creative things really only happen in mass market art mm -hmm. when there's an air of desperation. Hmm. Um, that's really when things slip through. 
And uh, that's kind of where we are at with Marvel. And one hard AF trailer uh, does not mean that Echo is going to be good. Yes. But it does mean that Echo is going to be interesting and that it's going to be interesting in a way that it might not have been had the last 12 months not gone the way they had gone. So pulling back a little bit further, we spoke to Joanna, who, unlike me, is not hot-headed about this stuff, who approaches, I, I think, approaches things with an, a quite open mind and knows people involved behind the scenes in Marvel in a way that we don't. I thought it was pretty noteworthy for her to say, well, the one thing that clearly has red flags all over it is Echo. Mm-hmm. Her reason for saying that is not just pulling it out of the air. Her reason for saying that is it has been, I don't know how deeply sourced, but pretty pretty explicitly reported that this series ordered at at eight episodes was deemed unreleasable by Kevin Feige after the original material came in. There were reshoots, there were re-edits, there were rejiggering. It is now a five-episode series. Uh, it is, no one is checking for it. And it seems that their response was, well, we have this show salad. We have the ingredients. What can we do to make this, who knows if it's good, but let's make it more interesting. And it seems that their response was, let's make a TVMA show out of it. They certainly did. And, and I don't know, I could be corrected on this, I don't know if that was always the intention. It seems to be that they took whatever pile of ingredients they had and what they chose to shape it into is a pretty vicious, adult-only, violent, dark, gritty. There used to be a a line within Marvel Comics called Marvel Max, which was not all ages. And it seems to be that that's what they're doing with it. And in a vacuum, not talking about the show, that seems to be, to me, the kind of thinking they need to be engaging with in order to salvage the larger thing. They need to be making things the best version of what they are, regardless of what they mean for the Kang dynasty. But you're absolutely right that given the vibes of the last few releases, especially the sort of marketing around the Marvels, which they started out kind of being like... It's a buddy comedy. Isn't this a fun buddy comedy? And then now are desperately trying to be like, an Avenger is back to fight the biggest evil that she's yet faced, but not Thanos, but Thanos is in the trailer. Yep. Like, they are now like, oh, crap, we have to make this seem really superhero-y. And then you obviously have the kind of daffy psychedelia of Loki. You have... um, God, what even became... What came before that? Uh, oh, Quantumania, right? Uh-huh. Like the, the sort of like, you know, kaleidoscopic Quantumania, like bantery stuff. For them to put out a trailer that is essentially cut to the rhythm of the raid, mm-hmm. uh, the, the famous action film, is um, pretty notable. I will say Brad Winderbaum, who is the head of uh, streaming for Marvel, told Variety, or told Marvel.com, and this is in a variety piece, Uh, Marvel Spotlight, which is this designation, gives us a platform to bring more grounded, character-driven stories to the screen. And in the case of Echo, focusing on street-level stakes over the larger MCU continuity. Just like comics fans didn't need to read Avengers or Fantastic Four to enjoy a Ghost Rider Spotlight comic, our audience doesn't need to have seen other Marvel series to understand what's happening in Maya's story. Maya's the character in Echo. I just think that that is essentially what the Netflix shows were supposed to be when they were doing Daredevil and Jessica Jones and And, and Luke Cage. And the Marvel television, when it was a separate entity run by Jeff Loeb, that's what they were doing. I mean, the the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show tried to suggest that they were cleaning up the messes made by the Avengers, but then uh, Feige wouldn't let them use any of those characters when they were kind of at war with themselves, and so they had to make their own reason for existing, which that show had a lot of fans. It ran for a bunch of seasons. Um, It's funny to see that they've, two or three years later from getting into TV, they're realizing that it cannot all be one boat. It cannot all be one story. And that there might be advantages to that. I think that is a smart pivot. I think that was in some ways um, an inevitable pivot. Um, But it took them a long time and they spent a lot of money to get here. And, you know, we talk about, this is just what the conversation has been on the podcast, but we keep referring to the book that Joanna co-wrote, MCU. I think with good reason, David Maisel, who I think was the, the guy who kind of talked Marvel Studios into existence uh-huh. and left early on, but a lot of what came after was the fruit of his labor, said that the reason why, and he, it took people convincing to get the here, right? But he was like, if you build this and you build an interconnected cinematic universe, every movie is essentially a sequel. So every movie is guaranteed a box office floor and we don't need to reintroduce and we can just continue to stack chips on chips. That really did work for a time. Yeah. But- And, you know, from my own experience and from just talking to people in TV, the marketing resources and energy laid out for a returning show versus a new show are quite different. 
all of this is to say, you kind of don't have to work as hard if you just assume a certain floor for everything that you do. I do not mean to imply that the people yeah, at Marvel are, are lazy in any way or the marketers. I don't mean to imply that. But there is there you can see that there was, whether you call it ego or whether you call it ego, the living planet played by Kurt Russell, there it's present in the last few years where they're like, fuck it, we're going to introduce Kang and Ant-Man 3 and they're going to lap it up. Yeah. And we don't have to sell you on it because you're coming anyway. Well, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the shooting for the high level of difficulty because if they had, they had nailed it, it would have been like, we have these people completely addicted mm-hmm. to everything. But the problem with addiction is that you're always chasing this first high and that the product tends to get cheaper and cheaper. Uh, yes. And like you wind up uh, being like, oh, we could just put Kang in this piece of shit and they'll watch rather the, than, hey, Kang's a really important character. It might dominate the next 10 years of blockbuster films. We need to really get this right. Yes, and a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of podcast uh, minutes have been have been spent devoted to discussing the fact that Oh, Kevin Feige understood and David Maisel before him that the great genius of the Marvel Comics universe is that it's interconnected. Yeah. And so Spider-Man knows Captain America and and you know and that and isn't that exciting and we'll see that on the big screen. Yes. The other thing that's great about an expansive comic book universe is that Moon Knight can be over here having a freak out and he never checks in with the West Coast Avengers to tell them about it. Mm-hmm. It's that Daredevil consistently can have some of the greatest creators in comics work on w- work on the character and the stories, and none of the stories ever mention Secret Wars because it's a blind lawyer in the toughest part of New York who's predominantly obsessed with Catholicism. Right. Like, that is not the same story as Thanos or the Infinity Stones, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And, look, this is a little bit, you know, cart after the horse has already left the stable, but embracing that if the content spigot is still turned on really high, which I think even if it's less, even if it's fewer shows, it's still a lot. Sure. This is probably the way for it to go. And anyway, all this is to say, I started talking big picture again instead of saying small picture. The trailer is sick. And the fact that Vincent D'Onofrio has literally become the way John Romita Jr. draws the kingpin in his body is astonishing to me. And um, yeah, there's room for this type of story. And honestly, the, 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 the frame that through which we should consider it is quite different when they say, hey, she's going to just kick some ass in New York. Okay, yeah, I'll check it out. I'm really glad that it's not also about the secret origin of the variant that's going to end time, (laughs) you know? This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy, and right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, so Andy and I have been talking about Marvel, perhaps against our better judgment for the last couple of weeks. We have. We have been talking about Loki. We've been talking about this. And in the meantime, you know, uh, I think that there's been, there have been things that have been aired, that have premiered, that have been in the middle of their runs that we've separately checked out or that we've done an episode of and then been like, is this really worthy of, or is this something that we're going to be able to talk about every week? Probably not. So we've been starting and maybe stopping or maybe just not talking about a bunch of shows. And I was kind of wondering, you know, is this a moment, is this just a 
a residual trickle down effect of the strikes, you know, where it feels like a couple of the bigger things that we were looking forward to, like True Detective got moved, or is it just maybe a feeling of a kind of like depression settling and over Hollywood that we residually feel uh, by living here and you working more intimately in the industry itself? Or is there something wrong? Right. Like, is there something kind of broken in TV? And I don't necessarily feel the need to like uh, diagnose that today necessarily. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. But I I think it's interesting sometimes when you're like, are we in a bubble? Are we the only two people who feel this? Should we just relax and just watch television like mm-hmm. most people? And then Michael Schulman's piece comes out, which is this is classic because it's podcasters podcasting about an article about a book that they haven't read. Yep. So this is good. shout out to us. Um, and uh, so uh, this is basically a, a broad strokes of the article that is also broad strokes of the book that is by Peter Biskin. The book is called Pandora's Box, How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV. This is taking presumably his Easy Riders, Raging Bulls approach. That was his classic book about the 1960s Hollywood and, and 70s Hollywood to the television era. Now I have... Uh, I've read various amounts of other books about HBO, like Tinderbox mm-hmm. and uh, what was the John Coblin one? The uh, It's not TV, it's HBO. Um, you know, there was Brett Martin's book. There's been like a lot of books about the kind of golden age of television leading into the prestige era, peak TV era, whatever you want to call it. And it sounds like Biskind is writing about the idea of IP of mm-hmm. uh, superhero sequelitis, of all the things that we've kind of like been kicking around on this podcast, especially recently, sucking all the life out of what felt like a truly vibrant, mm-hmm. transgressive, interesting, Wild West moment of television. He also, so the timing of the book is really good. Um, we have not read the book, but the book, but he was still reporting it and finishing I, it. I don't read books. I, as I recently. just watch Marvel trailers, by the way. <laughs> That, that's that's what fuels are. I'm, I'm functionally illiterate, so yeah. That's fine. Um, he was still finishing it as recently as the start of the writer's strike. So it 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 comes up uh, almost the present moment. Also, there's a it, it does seem to be a case of a writer having some priors and having some aspects of the world or the culture or the businesses that he writes about that interest him and aligning it or trying to make uh, make the world align with that viewpoint. I think that's actually pretty helpful as a corrective in this in this particular moment. Now, well, I will say again, we haven't read the book, Chris, due to his illiteracy, me due to the fact that it's not being published until uh, tomorrow, <laughs> which could have been your excuse, but you confessed something rather yeah. dire here. Me and my brother, Mike Johnson, just not reading. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have books in the Bible either, did they? Just tablets. Um, so I've read some reviews, other reviews of Biskin's book. The Los Angeles Times had a pretty interesting, oh, not, not takedown of it, oh. but was basically like, Biskin is pretty pretty fast and loose with facts like like in the book he's like uh the wolf of wall street was martin scorsese's highest grossing movie and so scorsese wanted some more you know to tap back into that so he hired the writer of that book of the writer of that movie terrence winter to make a tv show with him of course boardwalk empire premiered five years before wolf I of see. wall street so like little stuff like that okay so i i'm not vouching for the book or its reporting entirely but biskin's thing which he did in uh, Easy Riders. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. He also, and also did it in uh, Down and um, Dirty Pictures. In, which is the indie movie explosion out of Miramax and Sundance. Is yeah. He basically takes these two celebrated moments of creative explosion and says these were aberrations. Mm. He celebrates the creativity and of the, and of the you know, in some cases, doomed genius of the people involved in these moments who took advantage. But kind of what I was saying before about Marvel, like, these moments didn't happen in a um, economic vacuum. They happened at a moment when the old model wasn't working. New people were coming in. People were throwing up their hands saying, I guess we'll give this a shot. And then whether it's due to creative overreach or, you know, or, or the, the classic like creative types are not necessarily the most responsible stewards of things or the emergence of a, of a more corporate friendly type of art that makes more sense, like IP storytelling, superhero stuff, whatever, these moments end. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the coverage, including the week-to-week coverage on a podcast like this, which breathes good TV like oxygen, has been, wow, we're just in an era now. Like, this is what TV is. TV is what movies used to be. This is where the writers are. This is where the good stories are. And there's always going to be something new because, oh my God, look at these creators coming out of the woodwork. Not only are the greats, as uh, 
uh, Shulman refers to them as HBO's Davids, making all these great shows. Mm-hmm. There's a Michaela Cole. There's there's a Phoebe Waller Bridge. There's new people Donald coming Glover, into. Yeah, right. I think that the gist of the New Yorker article lo- aligns more with the way we've been talking, if not the specifics of what we've been saying, which is to say that if you take off the rose-colored glasses and you look at the last 10 years, you can look at the explosion of prestige TV almost entirely as a financial story of mm-hmm. an old model dying, a new model desperate to be noticed noticed, and to, to get a foothold. And in that moment, what, what did the... What did um, Greg Olson call it on the uh, broadcast yesterday? The mesh point. <laughs> the mesh point yeah, between the, these yeah. two yeah. Uh, eras. Some creative seeds can really take root and blossom, yeah. but they are not guaranteed. And it's they are, a, in fact, maybe already over. A lot of the shows that I think in the last, in this iteration of our podcast from, mm-hmm. from 2016 till now. Um, the we, ringer years. We've been podcasting since 2012. Did you know that we mm-hmm. did our 800th Watch episode recently? No, no one tells Is me that. Last things. week, guys, <laughs> <laughs> like it feels like eighteen hundred. She's like uh, talking to me. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I was told that I need to crunch some numbers. It, it, but did, where do they list how many episodes we have? Again, I need to crunch. Some <laughs> numbers. They. This is our eight hundred episode of the Watch or of any podcast. We have done eight hundred episodes of the Watch. And how many did we do of Hollywood Perspective? I don't know. The hard part there is because of the feed, you'd have to separate the Andy Greenwald podcast, which is like, a, like a, a jewel bite. <laughs> I did separate it. Especially when it came to statistics. I was like, those listens don't count. Yeah, yeah. no, I get it. Uh, anyway, in the time that we've been doing The Watch, yeah. that corresponded with um, a moment where A, streaming services, competing streaming services launched in an era of low interest rates where they could spend lots of money and take mm-hmm. on lots of debts. There was mergers and acquisitions. There were tech companies getting involved in the streaming world like Apple and Amazon spending a ton of money to get a foothold in Hollywood. You had a huge amount of competition among these networks to get anything to put on their on mm-hmm. their servers. And you also had this Still this moment, I think, where people were like, let's just try a bunch of stuff. We don't necessarily need to do two, a, a boys spinoff or two, mm-hmm. yet we can do, I don't know, I mean, we can do Fleabag, right? Like, that is definitely a, a change in, in philosophy when you look at places and it seems like most of the shows that you're seeing mm-hmm. are either rehashes of something are either reboots of something, are sequels of something, are spinoffs of something. You, you can mark... I think you could probably look at the the timeline and mark the moment when good reviews and award nominations went from being currency to Netflix to actual currency being currency yeah. for Netflix. There was a time in in this town, uh, capitalized in quotes, when um, you know there were there were five seasons. There was fall, winter, spring, summer, and for your consideration. And during FYC season the town was blanketed with ads for interesting, compelling shows on Netflix, like, you know, Master of None was everywhere, like, that they would would 100% not make again today. Yeah. Because what was valuable to them then was getting noticed, getting taken seriously, getting awards, and then what matters to them now is making money and meeting shareholder expectations. That's that's the difference. That's a good example. So, uh, All the Light We Cannot See, which is a a series that's on Netflix now. It's a... uh, based on the Anthony Dora book about uh, World War II. It's mm-hmm. got like a magical realism quality. Mark Ruffalo is in it. Has been absolutely shredded by critics. Mm-hmm. I watched the first episode and I understand why. Yeah, I, I, I watched it. And I am not like a big fan of magical realism and like, you know, t- typically not like a huge Sean Levy fan, although I do like some of his episodes for Stranger Things. Isn't there a German soldier who kind of plays both sides in that, kind of like you yesterday? <laughs> During the Eagles Cowboys game, I feel like um, that is an example of something where I would I would I would love nothing more than if that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does feel like it's been a minute since we've even had like a critically acclaimed show. You yes. know, like it's it's in this weird nether region of like, is this popular? Kind of maybe there was something in um in Matt Bellany's uh, newsletter last night about how like most shows on Netflix wouldn't even qualify for WGA residuals because they need to have been watched by like 70% mm-hmm. of uh, subscribers. And in fact, most shows on Netflix aren't even watched by 5% of subscribers. And like, so you, you have to imagine like a lot of the stuff that's out there is neither super popular, if at all, 
nor has it been critically acclaimed. It's been a minute since we have had yeah. like a knockdown drag out, like people falling over each other for how much they love this thing. Pretty much since Reservation Dogs, the bear. Like I know people, I, I, I like Our Flag Means Death, but like, yeah. you know, it's like, but, but I don't also, know if that's like a critical sensation. But also that's not, I when you say that critically acclaimed, that's not even what I would point to because the, first of all, like the FX half hour model is really successful for them, and I think in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is that it's, it, I think it's scaled financially for them. And their approach to getting attention and getting value out of the shows is quite different. When you say critically acclaimed thing, I'm thinking about like Mildred Pierce on HBO. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I, the English will keep going back to just because I loved it. But like on, on Amazon Prime, I, I mean something that is worthwhile solely for, just for existing. And it is not something that you can easily spoon feed to people. And thus, the role of a podcast or a critic becomes more of a champion. Now, obviously, that's flattering to us because we love being like, we love something. You should share in this with us. Yeah. But the entire marketplace has turned away from that as a viable uh, as a viable outcome for one of their projects to such a dramatic degree that I think we haven't even caught up with it to realize it. Right. Now, I'm not uh, blind to the fact that, as you said, everyone has to... Everyone has a mandate everyone, to, to make a profit or to not lose too much money at this particular moment, which was not the case a few years ago, as you said, because of the interest rates and things, but, and things that I don't fully understand, nor does our Speaker of the House. <laughs> but um, but, but it, is, it is noticeable. When you, and you, you, we could look at the HBO slate for the rest of this year and next year, and yeah, you could say it has been dramatically affected by the strikes. It has. But even the big shows that, w- that Casey was talking about when he met with the press last week, I mean, it's, it's The Last of Us. It's the it's the classy video game adaptation. It's House it's, of the Dragon. It's House of the Dragon. Yeah. It's it's White Lotus, which is critically acclaimed and also popcorn. Right. Um, those it's are a murder the, mystery show. Those are the big shows. Yeah. I, I thought that one of the benefits, and I, I do recommend people read um, Michael Schulman's piece in The New Yorker, is because if you have someone who doesn't, he, he's not talking about this stuff week to week on a podcast like we are. He's not writing a review in the trenches of like the 400 new shows every week. So I appreciated the way he categorized some things where he was just like, look at what's on the air right now. So he basically, in his opening paragraph, just brushes off the current state of TV like Jay-Z brushes dirt off his shoulder. It's star-crammed absurdities, the morning show, only murders in the building, IP brand extensions, Wednesday, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Yellowstone spinoffs, or under the banner of the once genre-busting HBO, rehashes of better shows, House of the Dragon, and just like that. When Worthy New Series breaks out, Res Dogs, The Bear, it feels like an anomaly, and just as many get prematurely canceled, he, he references the League of Their Own and Winning Time. It's pretty damning. It's pretty damning, and I think it... it I, I appreciate also what, what you were doing by bringing this up, because we've been floundering a little bit in terms of what we do here and how we want to talk about stuff, because nothing's been that good. Some things are good, and we will mention a few. We're going to run through a few. I, you know, I really like this show on Hulu called Nada, but this is not the conversation we were having five years ago, let alone three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I brought up all the light we cannot see is because I was like, I understand that maybe we can't always live in this moment of um, this this post-the-graduate moment mm-hmm. or like the the influx of new Hollywood uh, of, of Scorsese and Coppola and all these people coming in and making these like radical movies within under the tent pole of the studio system. And I understand that we can't always live in the Steven Soderbergh, Quentin Tarantino moment of indie film with Richard Linklater and Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and stuff like not that Jarmusch was making like uh, blockbusters. And I understand that we're not always going to be in a moment where it feels like every single thing on FX, HBO, half the stuff on Netflix like that there's basically like 10 to 20 hours of really viably interesting television on a week. I don't know if there ever was. I I actually am am a pretty cheap date. I would I would be totally happy to see a well-done mm-hmm. version of a lot of the stuff that's out right now. You're right. Not only are we floundering, I just feel like a lot of the programming is floundering where it's just like kind of like yeah, yeah everyone like everyone's safe and scared. I think that we you can overrate the auteur element of television making. For you sure. can overrate or underrate the role that ex- development executives play in it. But they are freaked out. They do not know. And this has been since COVID. The, but where the shows we're seeing now date back to the beginning of COVID. People did not know what audiences wanted. 
They did not know what their boss's tolerance for pain was. And they don't know what's popular or successful because even to them, sometimes internally, they don't know. The metrics don't make sense or they change or their bosses change. And you can feel that cumulatively in the shows that we're getting. Mm -hmm. And I think another a thing that Shulman does well in his piece, which is speaks to what Bizkind is good at noticing, is that you know within a f relatively few years from um, Pulp Fiction, Miramax was market testing um, Chocolat, mm -hmm. right? Or um, Cider House Rules are just trying to make Oscar bait. Um, that Those were the same people making those things, but they get scared and they get safe. And all the light we cannot see it's interesting in the, um, God, we are really just sourcing the New Yorker right now. Um, where's our check, Remnick? Uh, a few weeks, uh, months ago, there was the profile of Netflix's head of creative, Bella Bajaria. Mm -hmm. And that was where the infamous gourmet cheeseburger phrase came from. Yes. And during the reporting of that piece, the author was like embedded with Bella going to Europe to visit the set of a passion project for her, which was All the Light We Cannot See. And it's interesting that in the in in the context of that piece, I think it was sort of trying to both hands it saying, yes, she does Flora's Lava, but yes, she also does All the Light We Cannot See. But pull back like a little bit, it's all the same floor. Because All the Light We Cannot See is a beloved best-selling masterpiece that, again, you haven't read because you're illiterate, and I haven't read because I'm too busy reading the New Yorker magazine for content, apparently. <laughs> but it's, it strikes me as so early 2000s middlebrow Miramax core in that they take a beloved book that is probably a lot more interesting and deep and challenging than the show is. You hand it to Sean Levy, who no disrespect your shots at Sean Levy, but if you want to make something thought-provoking about war, I don't turn to the auteur behind A Night at the Museum. Mm -hmm. And it all gets that kind of gauzy, soft, the message of war movies is peace yeah. kind of thing. And you, and you get four hours of it. And so is it a gourmet cheeseburger? No, but it's... You know, it's 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 steak from from TGI Fridays. Mm -hmm. It's it its goal is not to be an artistic outlier at Netflix. Its goal is to just sort of spoon feed you more stuff that feels like it's good. And that's also the, kind of the history of TV in Hollywood. Well, it's a couple of the shows that are on right now feel like that. Mm -hmm. They feel like they should be good, but they're just not. Mm -hmm. Lessons in Chemistry, mm -hmm. the morning show is ridiculous, and I enjoy watching it, but is not a good television show. And at this point now, is almost more fun to watch to try and understand whether or not Jennifer Aniston and, and Reese Witherspoon are ever in the same set with each other when they're in shots together yep. or in scenes together because it really is like over the shoulder, but the person it's over the shoulder is clearly either a stand-in or not there. And they are seemingly acting against, like, they are not doing scenes with each other, I think is, is like one Interesting. guess, you know. Bass Reeves, I watched this last night. Uh, this is... Taylor Sheridan adjacent, but not done by Taylor Sheridan. I think he's the executive producer, but he didn't write these things. Write them. Not bad. Like, pretty pretty violent, pretty dark. David Oyelowo, like, like going full cowboy, it's really cool. Like, that. there's certain, there's some performances in there that's great. Donald Sutherland and Dennis Quaid are in it. This is one of those things that's, like, true late capitalism is just, like, great, great actors who are, like, the third or fourth person in in these shows, like we're gonna see in a, in a couple of weeks, Monarch, the oh, yeah. the MonsterVerse show is coming out, and it's got Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell in it, as well as Anders Holm and a bunch of other people. Like, it's just fascinating to see that these things are getting made. I don't really feel like that's gonna make any ten best lists. I think the the reviews have been pretty mid for that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, you could go down down the list. Lessons in Chemistry we talked about. We we had fun talking about that as a joke, but I don't think we really enjoyed it. Gilded Age, the headline on the Vulture is, the worst show on television is back and I'm so happy. This is another kind of like guilty watch of like a incredibly bloated uh, overwrought show that is enjoyable as like if you're killing time, but like I don't know that is like going to stand the test of time. Gen V and Invincible are two shows on Amazon. I like Invincible. Gen V was like, I think just too much boys for me. Like I didn't need another a totally. reiteration of everything that happens in the boys, but just with younger people. And then, like we said, all the light we cannot see. And what I, about bodies? And bodies is like, but bodies is like, let's talk about bodies for a second. So this bodies is, is like the number three. It was, it was at points number one on Netflix over the last couple of weeks. I think it's a classic Netflix. Like we've invented this thing that feels 
somewhat British, but could be, <laughs> but could is be anywhere. somehow international. Uh, it actually does have, I think, quite a bit of um, durability if they wanted to adapt it for uh, lots of markets. You know, if you wanted to mm-hmm. do an American bodies, if you wanted to do an Indian bodies, you you could you could very easily do it. It's essentially a story about um, a detective story set in four different eras, I believe. Yes, it's based on a, a Vertigo graphic novel um, written by the uh, British creator Cy Spencer. Um, and yeah, it's set in f- it's one body is discovered in four timelines yes. in the same place in London. Yes. And the timelines are 1940, 1890, 1941, 2023, and 2053. And there's some time travel elements to it. I watched two episodes of it and thought... Me too. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I think one, one of the things that I'm feeling a lot right now, this is a much bigger conversation, mm-hmm. is when I get into something and it's not like a professional requirement for mm-hmm. me to stick with it and it's fine, mm-hmm. I'd rather watch a good movie. A billion percent. And I think that in some ways, Bodies is less a harbinger of what's to come as residue from what was. Mm-hmm. Because this is not uh, a cheap show. And Stephen Graham's in it. it Kyle it, Soler, yeah. It, it, feel, it is made with the tone that it is an important show. It takes itself quite seriously and really applies itself to the pretzel logic of time travel, mm-hmm. much like Loki does. And my takeaway is maybe we shouldn't. Just maybe we shouldn't anymore. Like, it, there you, there was a moment, this is some real backwards-looking old guy stuff, but, like, remember when time travel, like, people didn't do it all the time in movies and TV shows because they were like, that's too hard. Yeah. Maybe we should go back to those times. No, I remember when Primer came out and, like, we had, like, long conversations in bars being like, is that how that works? It, is that, like, what do we... And it's so perfect because in Primer, they basically go back and bet the, the NCAA tournament. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Back to the Future works. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think broadly... Time travel stories, despite our increasing depth of them, work one of two ways. Either Back to the Future, where you're like, fuck it, let's just have fun with this. Or Dark, which is like Germanic precision, where everything has to make sense, and it does. But God, they drove themselves insane, and the show was pretty, as it was called, dark because of it. Um, Bodies is such a strange outlier to me, because yeah, it's like the shape and and kind of, if you squint, the feel and cast of a better show. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's the B team across the board in a way that is pretty dispiriting and I didn't really like. It doesn't even have a unique style. It just has kind of Netflix's house style of, of everything sort of smooth and bluish and we have actors that you kind of have seen before in other yeah, better it Netflix has, shows, It's like a sci-fi version of some of the Harlan Coben mysteries that they did, which I actually quite enjoy as like late night watches. And, but And you have people in it who I like, like Jacob Fortune Lloyd, um, who was really good in Queen's Gambit and has kind of an interesting vibe because he kind of has movie star looks, but he also seems to be making fun of people who would have movie star looks. And so he's probably better suited to be a villain uh, as a detective in the 40s. He's swaggering through a different show that I enjoy. Um, Shira Haas, who is amazing as the lead in another Netflix show that they probably wouldn't make today, Unorthodox, mm-hmm. plays a future detective who is has an Israeli accent but has an, an a Cockney brother. And then speaking of accents, this show is the ultimate heat check for our guy Kyle Soller, who is so, so, so good in Andor and will be good again in season two. Fascinating guy because he's a phenomenal actor and stage actor, an American who has a career in London, which made him perfect yeah. to join the cast of Andor. I think the downside is that when he gets cast in this and they're like, be British. And he was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and so in fact, they just seem to be cutting away from his dialogue at almost every moment, right. which means I can't understand him. And then Stephen Graham, who has the somber face of someone who just accepted a paycheck that has more zeros than he's seen in a while and knows he's got to sort of tweet through it. It's tough. Look, I, I don't need to very bodies. I think I, I didn't enjoy it, but it could be broadly enjoyable to yeah. people who like this kind of show. But it is such a weird thing that we live in an era where this very, very ambitious comic book adaptation with a decent cast and a confounding premise feels so rote and throwaway. Yeah. Um, it, something is imbalanced here because of that. Yeah. And there's, and there's, I'm sure half a dozen things that are on right now that we've touched on that we didn't touch, that we didn't even watch that are on that people are enjoying. Um, but that is not really necessarily like an indic- indication that we're like over TV or that anybody's wrong for liking this stuff. Yeah. I think it's more also that like I've been feeling very much the uh, what's it the anxiety of choice almost where it's mm-hmm. like 
because none of this stuff is even tied to like a night that it's on, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, everything is on all of the time. Mm-hmm. So is football and basketball. And so is the Criterion channel. And it's just like, it's tough to go three hours, four hours deep on a, a 10 hour mystery that you're like, eh, I, I don't really care how this ends. Maybe these moments of the work stoppage because of the strikes and then these articles coming out and, and um, the books coming out, I hope they give people pause to be like, wait, look how far we've fallen here. Yeah. What are we doing? And I think that, yeah, I think bodies is indicative of of where we ended up as opposed to where we're going in the sense that you hear from people now that development is starting back up again. And this is always the case, but now they're saying it loudly, which is like, where's our medical show? Yeah. Where's our cop show? Yeah. Let's make TV shows again. And I think that there is a lot of room to make good, not great, but super good shows. That's fine. That's what TV always did. And I then watch there would be SVU constantly. And then there would yeah. but there would be high points and there would be low points. And I think a good quote unquote version of a familiar TV uh, form could look quite different on a streaming service with with higher standards and higher budgets, or on a network with a creative acumen of an FX, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be interested in that. These things that are kind of like half baked, quasi would have been a movie ideas, and we're going to start it the way all good TV shows must start by saying. This is the start of the show, but seven years earlier, the show also started. Like, I, I, I don't think we are alone in saying we are fatigued. Yeah, by this. Well, that's isn't that part of the reason why when the Bears on, we're like, we're having like almost toxic shock from how much we're enjoying it, is because it's like, it's got a voice and it's got like a like a feel and it's got something it wants to say about being alive and shit and like it also it, looks and feels really cool. It's pure pleasure. It doesn't need something on it that says FX Spotlight. You can watch the show without knowing how to work in restaurants. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, there's a, I, I'll be curious to our conversation in a month from now when we're doing our top tens, but like, I feel like that's going to be more than any sort of like ephemeral idea of quality or, or taste. Like, the runner between what's good is pleasure. Like, was it enjoyable to watch the show and be with these people? Which is a good segue to the other show. Yeah, so in in all, all this doomsaying and everything I just said about, like, the current slate that's on right now, we are we are possibly entering, like, a little bit of a bounce back. We've got The Curse coming on. Uh, Showtime, Paramount Plus the end of the week. Uh, next week is A Murder at the End of the World on FX, which stars Clive Owen and Emma Corrin, so I'm interested in that. Very interested in that. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully hopefully there are some things that keep us going. And and hopefully when we get to January, True Detective and Masters of the Air and all the things that are coming on then are, are supposed to be, you know, like our saving yeah. grace. Hopefully they're they're good. And we're like in, in January, mid-January, we're going to be like, remember when we were like worried that TV but, wasn't going to work anymore? But also, like, I think it's important to note that we're not doomsaying because this is just, this is an industry with a lot of money and talent involved and it will go through different phases. But I think it is worth noting that we are in a different era mm-hmm. or we are experiencing a transition between eras and we're not sure what it's going to look like. There are going to be more than 10 good shows next year for us to put on our list and we're excited about. And we are as always, ready to be surprised by something we haven't seen before, which is why I want to bring up Nada. So let's talk about Nada. So this is a show that's uh, an Argentinian dramedy uh, that's on Hulu. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe it's only five episodes. The episodes themselves are about a half an hour each. Mm -hmm. And even, I believe, have cuts as if they are cut for TV. Uh, The first voice and the most recognizable face for American audiences that you will see in this show is Robert De Niro. So um, weird. Who... I have not gotten to the bottom of what's going on here, like in terms of his relationship to this television show. This is his first television role yeah. on this Argentine comedy yes. of manners. And I believe he does make an actual dramatic appearance later in the season, but for the most part, he serves as a direct-to-camera narrator for... I don't know if this aired in Argentina and Robert De Niro was... I don't know how this worked out, but there's not a ton written about Nada, so I'm we're kind of in the dark a little bit here. But I'll tell you a little bit about it. It stars an uh, actor named Luis Brandoni who plays an aging food critic named Manuel uh, who is behind on his book and out of step with contemporary trends. Sure is. And he finds himself on his own for the first time after the death of his steadfast housekeeper. Mm-hmm. It's written or is created by uh, Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat. Uh, hopefully I got within the neighborhood of the pronunciation there. And De Niro appears as a narrator who seems to share a kinship with the He's a writer. Character. He's not playing himself. He's yeah. playing a character, a New York writer. Who Named says he's Vincent fr- Parisi. Yeah. Yes. And- um, and there's a lot of, like, he's talking, you know, they're, they're, essentially, like, the 
the thing that I liked about this show that I wanted to talk to you about mm-hmm. is that, yeah, it's about like this old man who's trying to like get with the times a little bit. But it is a way more of a character portrait than that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about a guy who is accustomed to a certain way of living, who has gotten everything in his life just right. And uh, when the sort of most important Jenga piece is taken out of that mm-hmm. tower, things start to fall and he has to recreate his life with a new assistant, with a new housekeeper who has recently just moved from Antonia. Is that from Paraguay? From Paraguay. And this is a deeply decadent show about food and about taste and aestheticism and about aestheticism and standards. And, uh, and yeah, take it away. I mean, what did you think? I mean, this show was kind of made for me. Yeah. I was kind of thinking of like, a guy who doesn't like writing and loves to eat and talk about restaurants. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, as someone who recently had to start wearing glasses, like, God, there's so much room to grow now. Yeah, right. He looks phenomenal. Yeah. Like, he's, he's, this guy's a bit of a dandy. He has beautiful yellow glasses. He's opinionated about everything. And it is, I saw some writing about the show, and they're like, ah, oh, this is the Argentine Curb Your Enthusiasm, yeah. which it is not. But it is a show that could be subtitled Older Man Yells at Cloud, because uh, Brandoni, who is a legendary actor in Argentina and a politician at one point in his life, is able to. I mean, he's 83 years old. He's the perfect avatar for scenes where he's just like, why should I know all of these codes for credit cards if I want to right. buy food? Right. Why do I need a driver's license to be on the street? How ridiculous. Like, it is pretty low-hanging fruit, but this is a guy who knows everything about the fruit and knows when you should harvest it and which uh, which variant, sorry, Loki, you should be eating of that particular apple. Yeah, which when season. artichokes are in season, yeah. And so it's just a show, it's, it's, it's kind of just, a, I'll use the word again, it's a pleasurable show about someone's pleasure. Yeah. And it was very fun to watch. And it is proof, not that there's life still in the machine, but there's still room for surprises. The, the, the confluence of events that led to this show, A, existing, B, being on Hulu, and C, co-starring Robert De Niro are beyond me. Don't understand it. Fascinating. Yeah. So odd. But... um but I'm happy that it's there. And I think that just generally, you and I are, as, as much as we want, like a big HBO literary adaptation that will be challenging, but potentially mass audience in a certain way, we also want small little surprises to fall into our lap in the corner of the streaming verse. Yeah, this has aesthetically, like is pretty TV, you mm-hmm. know? It's it's very, I would describe it as like placidly kind it, of shot. It's like It's slow. Yeah, it's, it's slow. I think Buenos Aires looks great. I, I still kind of one of the cheap thrills of of this era mm-hmm. of TV is when I get to go to different places because of TV shows, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's zero 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 or uh, nada. Like I love traveling around the world and getting do, to see. Do you think Manuel could travel by boat, much like no? But that's in that, in like part of the thrill. I mean, Lu, that, you know, another show that we didn't stick with is Lupin, but like I love going to Paris. Yeah, you know, like briefly to check that out. You know, it's like. Um, I, I enjoy that aspect of modern television that has so much international programming that you get to like you get to enjoy like one yeah, step I, removed tra- travel. I don't think we are representative of everyone, but I do notice that there are um, there's two versions of international shows, especially coming through the streaming verse and coming through something like Netflix. There's the shows that take you to a place that you've never been and you can celebrate it on those terms. And I think that's um, the shows you mentioned, like Lupin. Call My Agent, uh, Squid Game, I would put in that yeah. category. Uh, Money Heist, which I don't, I've don't, i never really engaged with, but I think it, people say Yeah, I watched the first well. season. It was cool. But then there's the kind of more like the, the Netflix-y scrim of this is a show from nowhere for everywhere, which was the problem with me for 1899, which was the follow-up to The Creators of Dark. Uh, the Creators of Dark, that was That's the what I was thinking about with Bodies, where I was just like this, yeah. Everything, it, it, I mean, that show gives us four versions of London all of which feel like a video game, Mm -hmm. none of which feel like a real place where anybody lives, which is a bummer because you have an opportunity to make a show in a place. And I think that one lesson from the last few years of TV, not just on this podcast, but in terms of ratings, look at Squid Game, is that if you make a compelling program, specificity is a plus. Now, Nada is not Hulu's Squid Game, but it is more that category than the alternative because it is entirely, entirely specific in a way that I found really charming. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we found something so that we enjoy. So that's the watch spotlight. Let's hang it on that show. <laughs> you don't have to watch anything else from Argentina to appreciate it. Uh, we can wrap it up there. When we come back later in the week, 
Well, we have there's some new stuff coming, and then there's mm-hmm. Loki finishing. So we we will have a full show. Mm-hmm. We, and, you know, maybe we'll do a mailbag soon since we missed our 800th episode mailbag. So we should do the mailbag. Plus, you know, you and I are gonna sign off today and go on Fandango and get those Marvel tickets. Marvel's <laughs> tickets. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Thank you to Kaya McMullen for producing. Many of the 800 episodes. She's still done. crunching numbers over there. So maybe yeah, if we she's get back just to us like on Thursday. Indeed.com. <laughs> um, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.